It is good to see each of you here today. Everyone has been so incredibly kind to me, and if nothing else, at least leading up to my first sermon, everyone was so kind. I'm not sure if you'll still feel that way after uh, you get a chance to hear, but I'm so thankful to get to be with you uh, this morning. I do want to thank Ed. He has been so kind uh, to me, uh, him along with other members of the committee. They have shown me nothing but graciousness uh, all along the way. For the staff of this church, they have been so kind to me as well. I do want to say a special thank you to Pastor Brandon. Uh, He has been so gracious to me and had the heart of a pastor in knowing what so much about this transition has been. Uh, He and his family have been so hospitable and so kind. I just want to say I'm so thankful he's my pastor. And uh, are you appreciative and thankful that he's your pastor today? Amen. I want to speak today, Pastor Brandon asked me to speak and to give two weeks on discipleship uh, as uh, as I get to step into a role of being the discipleship pastor here, which I'm so thankful for, and I'm thankful for, once again, the kindness that you have shown me. This is going to be a two-week series, and so if you take notes, I might win your favor right off the bat because I've just got one word for a title each week. This week, uh, it will be the word known. And you can see here that you might find a little bit of a play on the word, whether you want to take no or whether you want to take known. I think both of those are uh, relevant for us as we get a chance to talk about the subject of discipleship. It is July the 3rd, and uh, we get a chance to celebrate Independence Day all weekend and tomorrow. I know if you've got dogs at home, you are thankful for the fireworks that happened last night and that will happen tonight and that will happen tomorrow uh, as your dogs hide under the bed or whatever it might be. And so as we get a chance to celebrate that, I can just say to you this morning that I don't think there's anything more honoring to the best of who we are as people and the best of our history than to focus completely on the Lord Jesus today. And so in order to look full in His wonderful face and find the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke chapter 5 this morning. Luke chapter 5. As you're turning there and we think about the subject of uh, discipleship, we, we think about this great reality that to know and to be known is a, a kind of uh, dual understanding for us. If you've ever studied another language, if you've taken Spanish or some other language, you might have found that in some other cultures of the world, knowledge is spoken of differently whether that is you personally know someone relationally or whether that's knowledge, intellectual knowledge that you would gain. In English, we tend to most of the time use the same word. However, there's a distinction here that not only for us is discipleship a growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Sometimes as believers, we think that discipleship is getting good Christians to be better. And the reality that we see in Scripture is discipleship begins with those who are lost being found. And so to know the Lord and to receive knowledge about the Lord begins with being known by the Lord Jesus and knowing personally what you cannot gain intellectually. We come to a passage today in Luke chapter 5, which is one uh, of my favorites And we find the calling of a man named Simon who will come to be known as Peter. And throughout much of the gospel, Luke's gospel here today uh, draws us into his story. And I love the way that it starts. So won't you read with me or follow along uh, with me as I read from Luke chapter 5. I'm going to begin with verse 1 this morning. 
Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Will you pray with me today? Father, for all that we are not, we just ask that you would move and make us. Father, for all that we do not know and all that we need that we do not know how to ask, Father, today we ask that the Lord Jesus, in in the might of the Holy Spirit, would work and move in our hearts and lives for what we need to know, what we need to hear. And so, Father, I just ask today that you would allow us, like the hymn writer said, to look full in the face of Jesus and find the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Our time is a bit limited today, so let's just dive right into the list. Can we do that? I'd like to show you seven things from this passage this morning that I think are so wonderful as we think about the process of discipleship that begins not only with what knowledge we can gain. Uh, A lot of times when we think about discipleship, I've found already that I've had different friends reaching out saying, I hear you're going to be a discipleship pastor. Here's the method you need to use. Here's the way you need to do this or that. And, And those things are great. Methods are wonderful things. But can I tell you that discipleship never starts with a method. It always starts with a person, the person of Jesus. And so for Simon Peter, what he needed that day on the shores of of the Sea of Galilee, referred to here as Lake Gennesaret, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he needed not to know something, but to be known by someone, the Lord Jesus. And so we find a few things, even right off the bat, I'll go ahead and give you the first one today, and that's this, the Word of God is foundational. The Word of God is foundational. Aren't you thankful for that? That it's not about what you and I know, it's not about who you and I are, our testimony even is not ultimately about ourselves as the main character, our testimony is about what the Lord Jesus has done to step into who we are, to rescue us from a fate that we deserved. And so the Word of God is foundational. If you want to be really technical and you like taking really, you know, technical notes, the word that's used here is called a subjective genitive in the Greek. And what that means is that when the Bible refers to the Word of God here in Luke 5, that doesn't simply mean the Word about God. That means the Word from God. 
And I'm so thankful that as we come to the truth of Scripture, we don't simply come saying we have a message about the Lord. No, we come with a message from the Lord himself. This is the first time that this phrase occurs in the Gospels, and it occurs here for the first time in Luke's Gospel. And in that, we see that Jesus, even with uh, all that's going on, all the miracles and the healing and signs and wonders that are taking place, he came to give the foundational need that the people then had and the foundational need that you and I have. And that's hearing from the Lord. The Word of God is foundational. The Word not only about God, but from God. I I love what the text here says. The crowd was pressing in on him. They were gathering, and and he could barely uh, even have space to speak to them because of them pressing in. Often in the Gospels, we think of the crowd pressing in because of miracles that they needed, those who were sick, those who were facing hardship, and they wanted to get to Jesus, and certainly we see that in the Bible. But I love it here. The crowd is pressing in on him to hear the Word of God. Now, for many, we come to this passage, and and in our day, we have this temptation that I think culturally is gathering more and more of a hold on us if we're not careful. We begin to think, well, yeah, that was in Jesus' day, but people today don't want to hear the Word of God. They're not interested in that. You, You remember the verse from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, the field is white for the harvest, but the laborers are few. You say, well, Jesus, yeah, that was in that day, but when we look at our day, we say, well, the field's not very white. We got a lot of laborers, but there's just not much of a yield out there. And I just tell you, I don't find that to be the case in Scripture. I don't find that to be the case for us. If we're not careful, we begin to think, well, there's just not really a desire for the Word of God. And certainly, through certain cultural markers, we'll say, yes, there are ways that people are not naturally prone to want to hear the truth of God. Can I say that that's been the case throughout generation after generation after generation? And yet the same way, the word of God is powerful and foundational, sharper than any two-edged sword. You think about uh, a man named Rick Richardson who wrote a book called You Found Me under uh, the Billy Graham Institute writing about what it looks like to, to seek to reach Uh, current generations, and one of the illustrations that he makes, one of the comparisons he makes is Abraham having a conversation with God in the chapters of Genesis, where God says, well, if there'll be 50 people found in Sodom and Gomorrah that are righteous, we can spare the city. And Abraham, as you know the story, many of you, talks him down and says, well, if there can only be 10 righteous people, and God says, okay, if there's only 10 righteous people, we'll spare the city. And Rick goes on to say that really the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah, as much as the evil that was taking place there, was the lack of righteous people willing to stand for what God had called them to. And so for the Word of God being foundational in your life and in my life, one of the areas where that begins are the people who belong to God's church saying, you know what, the Word of God is foundational enough not just for me in my home, but in the streets and the byways and the relationships in the neighborhoods where we live. The Word of God is foundational, number one. Number two, I love this. Jesus uses people's personal lives as the moment for impacting them. A phrase you'll never see in the Gospels is Jesus saying, now if you'll all pass around the discussion questions that I've prepared for today. You never see that. 
Certainly we see Jesus in environments like the synagogue and the temple, but we see so many moments where Jesus chooses the personal time where people are in their regular routine to meet them with the great truth that they need. He's here on the shores of the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. He sees two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. They're certainly not in the mood for a sermon, you would think, but Simon Peter, having been told by his brother Andrew about Jesus, becomes willing enough to take his boat and to follow Jesus and to be where Jesus has called him. You know, Jesus uses people's personal lives as the moment for impacting them. Many of you know that in early church history, the concept of a church facility was far beyond their scope of thinking. That for them, they were hiding out for their lives for much of the first three centuries of Christian history. And in that, the concept of having a church facility such as this church is blessed with would have been mind-boggling to them. And when they spoke about the church, they were speaking about a collection of individuals that were out in different places. And so the community, the assembly of the church They were the people. Now in our day, certainly the same is true. The church as it exists is we the people and not primarily the facility, but we catch ourselves in that, don't we? Saying, well, we're gonna go to church. We're gonna be at the church and we have that kind of mindset. Now that's not a negative thing until it draws us into thinking that the only holy business that God's called us to in our week is the business that takes place inside the facility. Can I tell you some of the mightiest things that Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life are in the highways and byways and hedges where we live where all the spiritual activity doesn't normally take place. And so Jesus used the personal lives and the personal moments and the personal time to meet people where they were. I believe he's called us to the same thing. For where you live and where you go to school and where you work and the circles that you eat with and, and, and know, what is it going to mean for us to look into that? And so I, I think the third thing that we would see here as well, continuing in that same theme, that Jesus also came for those who aren't easy to reach. Jesus also came, excuse me, for those who aren't easy to reach, quote unquote. Now I had to put that in quotes because do you know the reality that none of us were easy to reach? None of us were. Jesus didn't have to stoop down any less to save any one of us than perhaps anybody that you would envision in your mind today to say, well, I just don't know that this person could be interested in the Lord Jesus. Luke's gospel particularly is the gospel of the outcast and those who are lost and needing to be found. Luke highlights this in a special way. And so we see the Lord Jesus in the same way going to not only the crowd, but to Simon Peter. For those who aren't easy to reach, we get a little window into this, not only that Simon Peter is a fisherman and he doesn't seem to have been around any of the activity that was going on ahead of time. We'll look in just a moment about Simon's brother Andrew who who pulls him in, but but in this we see that Simon is someone who was not easy to reach. His response to Jesus in verse 8 as well points to this. But I love what Jesus does. Now, Simon that day was converted not to be a Baptist, but to be along another denomination. The reason we know this is because he had a front row seat for what Jesus called him to do. He said, Simon, I want you to take your boat and I want you to pull out away from the shore and I'm gonna sit in your boat 
and I'm going to preach over you to the rest of the people that are on the shore. If you read commentaries that describe this passage, they'll talk about the acoustic ways that standing over water helps to project a voice in a day with no microphone, and certainly those things are correct. But can I tell you, I believe Jesus got Peter in that boat because Peter needed a front row seat for what he was going to say that he wasn't going to hear while he was mending his nets. And so Jesus had a plan for what he was doing in Simon Peter's heart even then. And so the word from God that begins to emanate from Jesus' lips, he himself being the word that was with God from the very beginning, as he begins to speak into not only the people's heart and need, those same words are coming across to Simon Peter. On a day where he hadn't slept very much the previous night, we see that in a moment. On a day where he considers himself probably more of a fisherman than a religious person, but Jesus came for those who aren't easy to reach. We see some of the groundwork that's laid for this by his brother Andrew. You see the the fourth point here, Andrew pointed Simon to Jesus. Now, if you're feeling really, you know, on your game today, I want to invite you to put your thumb or your bulletin or something in Luke so that we can turn back in just a moment. But I'd invite you to turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John gives also an indication, a description of the calling of the first disciples. But we see a different vantage point. We're able to focus in on Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. I'd like to look at just a few verses. John 1, beginning verse 35. The next day again, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now you can flip back to the Gospel of Luke if you like, but here we see Andrew, who is responsible for bringing his brother Simon to the Lord Jesus. He is one of the first to come and to meet Jesus. He is initially following John the Baptist, which already puts him in a great place to be. And yet Andrew is not mentioned very often in the Gospels in comparison to people like Simon Peter. You know what we do see about him? Every time we read about Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. And so you see him bringing Simon, his brother, to Jesus. You'll see him later bringing a a boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus. You'll see him in John 12, bringing a group of Greeks who wanted to meet Jesus and they find Andrew and Philip and Andrew brings them to Jesus. You know, the church of Jesus Christ often has its greatest work done through the action of the Holy Spirit in those quiet, unsung people who are in the business of bringing people to Jesus. Maybe themselves, not the ones most quoted, not the ones most known, maybe not the ones most out front, but they're the ones who have a passion and to say, if I can just get this person to Jesus. 
I've loved as Southern Baptists that we've had the, the who's your one emphasis the last several years. This idea that we don't need to perhaps be so bogged down with thinking, well, how can I reach the entire world and how can I make sure that I get this many or that many? But if all of us said, Lord, who's the one person you've placed in my life that you would give me an intentional passion that this person could come to know Jesus? Lord, if you would do that in me, all the ways that the kingdom of God could be affected and people's lives were changed. Andrew had one by one by one someone that he said, I just want to get them to Jesus. The same book that I mentioned earlier by Rick Richardson called You Found Me studied a whole group of churches and they tried to find out linkages between those that were reaching people and those that they were. And they said the greatest avenue for those churches that were reaching people to reach them was this, hospitality to the unchurched. It wasn't programs. It wasn't budgets, it wasn't facilities. It was people who took the avenues of their own lives to say, how can I bring this person in? Because even more than I want the company, even more than I want to do this or that, I wanna see this person know Jesus. One well-known pastor in our convention has mentioned that uh, one of the great ways that this shapes us is all of a sudden when we've got that friend and that person that we know and we want them to meet the Lord Jesus, all of a sudden our prayers change. And on Sunday morning, our prayers turn into, oh Lord, today, would you let your word affect this person? Lord, would you meet them here today? Would you save them? Would you rescue them? And all of a sudden, when we get turned into having the heart of an Andrew, God does some of his greatest work that's not ultimately about our skills and our knowledge, but about what God wants to do. One of the greatest books on evangelism that I've read the last few years is by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She said that in our world, one of the things that is happening is us as Christians in the midst of culture and otherwise is that we're sort of, if we're not careful, getting drawn into two side streets that are both very dangerous. And the first is to say, well, it's easier to shape my view of Christ and the world around whatever the cultural temperature is at the time. And so if I can just sort of, you know, stick my finger in the wind, find out what's going to be popular to the world, and I'll sort of adjust my faith around that. That obviously is very dangerous. And she said the second one that's very dangerous, which is also particularly for those uh, who are in evangelical circles even more popular is to have a drawbridge mindset with our homes. And we come into our homes and the garage door goes up and the car pulls in and the garage door goes down and we sort of metaphorically lift the drawbridge up and we've got the protective mode around our home and we're gonna make sure that there's no you know, connection perhaps. We're gonna keep ourselves unstained by the world and the way we're gonna apply that is to no longer interact and no longer reach out. She said that's also a deadly deadly side street for believers. God's called us to be Andrews and to say, God, I know, as, as Rosaria says in that book, you never get the address wrong. Can I tell you, whoever you're living next to that's difficult, that's too loud, that's too boisterous, God's placed you where you are, not by accident. 
And so how can you pray for the people who live near you? How can you pray for the folks who are in in your families, that are in uh, your workplaces, in your schools? How is God calling you to intentionally pray and to see how he would give opportunity so that others might know the Lord Jesus? Because here's a window into what we see with Simon Peter, number five. To impact people, Jesus has to do what only he can do. To impact people, Jesus has to do what only he can do. Now, you know what none of us can do? None of us can do what Jesus does in this passage. Here's what we see. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, verse 4, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. Jesus did what only he could do. And can I tell you that in your life and in my life, as we pray for those that we know need to know the Lord Jesus, we have to pray that Jesus would do what only he can do in their lives and hearts. We have to reach out and to ask God that he would do that. One of the things that happened to us as Baptists in the last hundred or so years is that we were trying sometimes to prove that we just weren't quite like perhaps other denominations or other people. We don't want to err too far on this side or that side. And sometimes that's made us into people, if we're not careful, that we can get to be a bit cold. And we don't believe God can actually do big things. Can I tell you that he can? And for the people in your life that you say, I just don't know that they could possibly be close to knowing the Lord Jesus, would you begin to pray that Jesus would do what only he can do? And Jesus does what only he can do in this passage to point uh, those who were uh, uh, in that, those boats and nobody more than Simon Peter to the truth of who he is. And then we see Simon Peter's reaction. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I love this window into Peter's reaction. That he doesn't celebrate the miracle and he doesn't say, boy, we're going to eat fish for a month. I really enjoy seafood. I'd have been really excited about this day. But Peter doesn't move to whatever money he's going to make or whatever food he's going to eat. In light of the presence and power and goodness of Jesus Christ, he falls on his knees and he says, depart from me. It would be better that you go away Jesus. I got a chance to, um, when I was in college, to meet the lady who would become my wife. I got a chance to meet Laura. She went to another college, and I went to a different college, and through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, we got a chance to come together for missions training, and I met her, and I said, oh, Lord, I want somebody like that. I I really like her. I, I think she's wonderful. We talked, and we hit it off, but there was something in me that said, you're not in her league. Just leave it alone. And I didn't have the courage, and I let it go. And then we went off in different places, and I didn't know how to get in touch with her. There was no Facebook. There was no social media. What we had, you could barely call the internet, students. It's true. Ask your parents about it. She she might as well have been on the moon. She was lost forever. Several years later, I got a chance to go to a concert with some friends. As, uh, As we were there at this Christian concert, we were actually in High Point and lined up all the way across a large parking lot. As we got there, we'd taken several uh, wrong turns on the way. As I got to stand right there and got in line, there was Laura right in front of me. I said, Lord, I won't chicken out again. I'll find out one way or the other. Wasn't too long after that that my wife, Laura, who was not yet my wife, but uh, 
getting ready to have our first date, we got to go to Lock, Stock, and Bagel on Battleground Avenue in Greensboro. Big time first date, you know. So we were going to eat lunch there together. That was going to be our first time of sitting down together. And I still remember the moment of sitting there in the booth and watching that door and just waiting for her to come in. And I remember her coming in, and I can still, just like it was yesterday, see her crossing the room and sitting down right across from me in the booth. And in that moment, what I should have felt was the greatest joy that I've ever felt in my life. Can I tell you what went through my mind? She came in, she sat down, and she was so beautiful. And every failure I'd ever had, every way that I wasn't good enough that I'd ever known, everything came washing over me in my heart. My first reaction as I looked at this beautiful woman that I had longed to get a chance to sit across from for so long as we were finally face to face, all I could think about was how this woman who's so incredible can't possibly love me back. And in that moment, I just sat there and kind of fought back you know, the, the sadness of that and worked through it. Thankfully, she stayed around. She still hadn't figured that out yet. Don't tell her. And so uh, we got married that summer. But the Lord Jesus reveals himself to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's reaction is, you could never love me. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Can I just say to you what I believe? This is just my theory. I believe what's larger than any, you know, discussions that we want to have on scientific theory and on history on cultural issues and politics, what's far deeper than any of that in whether or not people are willing to get close to Jesus. I think what trumps all of that is an understanding and a belief in people to say, there can't possibly be something that wonderful to place my hope in. And Jesus can't possibly be as wonderful as you claim he is. And so the only answer, the only hope for people is realizing, just like Simon Peter, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. All I can do is come to Jesus and surrender. And so Peter realizes, falling on his knees, that he's not worthy enough for the Lord Jesus. Can I give you the last point today, which is the most wonderful part, not only for your story and my story, but for the story of those folks that we would pray for today, and that is this, that no one needs be afraid when they fall on their knees before the Lord Jesus. My son got a chance to go to camp, as Ed mentioned, and we were at nighttime when it's bedtime. That's when my kids get the most theological, because the longer you can talk about theology, the longer you don't have to go to sleep. And so some of the greatest spiritual discussions take place right at that good night point. And he said, Dad, one of the things I learned at camp is there's 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day. And I said, well, son, let me tell you something. You're going to get one tomorrow in Luke 5. Peter falls at Jesus' feet and he says, go away from me. I'm not like these other folks. They're religious. They're good people. You don't understand about me. You're not going to want to be close to me. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus says these wonderful words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Is there anything better than the words don't be afraid from the mouth of Jesus into your life, my life, and the life of anybody who would need it? Don't be afraid. Lastly, number seven, Jesus has called us out of fear and into bringing others into life. John describes it this way, that in him, Jesus was life And that life was the light to all men. What we offer people is not a system to believe in. And we don't offer people a social group to be a part of. 
We offer people life and light in a world of death and darkness. And so the Lord Jesus, calling Simon Peter out of fear in the same way would speak into our lives to say, whatever you walk in here with today, you don't need to be afraid. Then in surrender to Jesus Christ, there's no longer any need for fear. And so Jesus says to Simon Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. From now on, you are going to be an avenue for other people to know life in Christ. I want to show you a picture this morning. This is a, one of my heroes, come to be one of my heroes. It's a guy named Edward Kimball, if we have that picture uh, up here anywhere. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s. Edward Kimball taught Sunday school in uh, the area of Detroit, and he had a group of students that he served and really had a burden for, many of them from other backgrounds. They were not believers. And there was young, one young man in his Sunday school class uh, that, uh, that he said had the most darkened mind of any child that he'd ever met. And so this teenager, this young man, Edward Kimball, not only taught in Sunday school, but there was one day that he said, you know what, I know that this young man works at the shoe store, I'm going to go down to his shoe store, and I want to intentionally have a conversation with him personally about Jesus. And Edward Kimball went down to that shoe store, and he had that conversation, and like so many of us, after that conversation, he thought he'd really bungled it. But he found out later that that young man gave his life to Jesus Christ shortly after he left. That young man's name was D.L. Moody. Moody came to faith in Christ and became, as many of you know, an incredible evangelist, not only in the United States, but even in other parts of the world. D.L. Moody had a Sunday school that grew to thousands of people in Chicago's inner city, reaching out to kids that nobody else would reach out to. In 1879, Moody won to the Lord a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer. And he grew up to be a preacher. F.B. Meyer won a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman to Christ. Chapman grew up to be a pastor, and when he was a, a pastor and evangelist, he brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday trusted in Jesus Christ and himself became an evangelist that God used mightily. Billy Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina that was so successful that another follow-up revival not long afterwards was planned with a man named Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach, and the night that he preached, a young man named Billy Graham gave his faith, uh, gave his life to Christ. Now, if you trace backwards, the most used and mightily used evangelist in terms of scope of the last 150 years in American history, Billy Graham, Billy Sunday. D.L. Moody, you will find at the root of all of that a Sunday school teacher that nobody knew who said, I'm going to give my heart and my time to making sure that those entrusted to my care realize not only that I personally care about them, but I want them to know Jesus. Oh, what it must have been like for Edward Kimball to step into glory and for the angels to say, just wait. You never know how God wants to use what you think you can't do well and the ways that you think, surely he must want to use somebody else. You can't know how God would work in all those ways. And so for you Sunday school teachers and for you children's workers and for you folks who simply have those that you love, you care for, your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers, 
I wanted to remind you, be reminded of a man who thought he bungled it and changed the face of Christianity in the Western world for the next century and a half. I want to invite you today to realize that knowing Jesus personally is the avenue by which God does his greatest work. So will you be reminded today to be known by Jesus and in that that the greatest hope you could ever give to anybody else is also pointing them in the same direction. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus himself is the great hope, the great life, the great light for all. So Father, today, even as we begin by looking at what it means to not only grow in our knowledge, but to be known and to know the Lord Jesus. Father, all around this room, would you challenge those of us who are scared to get too close to the Lord Jesus because of feeling that he couldn't possibly be all that he claims to be, and if so, that he couldn't possibly accept us knowing who we are. Father, may we surrender and fall on our knees before Jesus and find those wonderful words resound in the same way, do not be afraid. So Father, if there are those who need to know the Lord Jesus today, I just ask that you would work in our hearts, in our lives. Father, for the ways that you're compelling those of us in here today to say, the person in our lives, the neighbors, the friends, the family members, to be more intentional with, to love, to care for, to have a patient hospitality. Lord, may you challenge and draw us in, even now in these moments, to begin to pray that you would break through and that you would use us in the hearts of those who are far from you. So Father, we commit this time to you. We ask for your help, your guidance, and your strength. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand this morning even where you are? We're gonna have a time of invitation and if you don't know what else to pray for today, I can give you two things right off the bat. If you're in here today and you say, I just am a little nervous about getting too close to the Lord Jesus, can I invite you today that today would be the day to fall down on your knees and recognize that Jesus has accomplished all that you can accomplish and you need not be afraid. And so if you wanna come to him today, there's no greater day than today to do so. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. I believe there'll be others at the front as well. I'd love to do that today. If you're here today, there's someone on your heart and in your life that you think, well, surely not that person. I just can't. However it would be, whoever God's laying on your heart today, would you go to him now and begin to pray for that person, that God would use you, that God would use whatever means necessary to draw them to the Lord Jesus. Let's go there together. For anything else on your heart and life, if you wish to join our church, if you've got any other prayer need today, I'd love to pray with you or others who are here at the front, however God's leading. Once you go to him in prayer now, even as we sing and pray together.